traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. A note before we start. If you haven't listened to Who Runs the World Part 1, I'd hop back and listen to that before you get into this one. You wouldn't want to miss three luscious lady bosses, would you? When we last walked with our lady hat Shepsut, she'd just elbowed a harem girl out of the way to become the official royal stepmother for the new boy king. And this time, she isn't going to pretend that she isn't the person making all the big decisions. She's a little older, a little wiser, and a whole lot more confident than ever before. Grab your most regal headdress and a whole lot of attitude. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout-out to my patrons. My pirate queens, Emily, Get Grim Podcast, Jessica B., and Wendy. And my lady presidents, Alexis, Amy, Brendan, Ashley, Audrey, Avery, Jordan, Caroline, Cassie, Courtney, Claire, Debbie, Edie, Elizabeth, Ellie, Eve, Jackie, Jessica S., Caitlin, Karen, Casey, Kat, Catherine, Lauren, Louisa, Lindsay, Mary, Meg, Nancy, Pamela, Paul, Sasha, and Townsend. If you dig the Explorers, becoming a patron for as little as $1 a month really helps keep the show going. Plus, it gives you access to exclusive bonus episodes, sneak peeks, and more. To check it out, go to my website and click on Become a Patron. So Hatshepsut is striding around the palace in a sheath dress and that vulture hat, coating herself in myrrh resin to make her, in her words, gleam like the stars before the whole land. And people are taking her power seriously. She engages in religious rituals, meets with court officials, and hopefully has some steamy affairs here and there. But as the current pharaoh's sort of stepmother, her claim to power is only going to get more tenuous. She knows the elite families are happy to have her as long as they can push her around, and so she has to tread carefully. But to stay on top, she's going to have to make some bold moves. She starts with an ambitious building program, erecting grand temples to honor her father and the new pharaoh, but also to serve as walking advertisements for herself and her power. She gets her main man Senenmut to go and get her two giant ten-story granite obelisks, both done in quite a fetching shade of pink, and makes sure to have her image carved in. She gets huge scenes etched into temples. In Egyptian art, the bigger you are, the more powerful, and doing things that usually only a king would be doing. In other words, she's paving her own way into the pharaohship without actually saying she's planning to make that particular move. Kind of like when American politicians spend many months pretending they're not going to run for president when we all know they're gonna. This is a very public way to dress for the part and convince other people that you're the one who's meant to be in it. And so it is that as early as year two of Tutmosis' reign, and as late as year seven, she hands over the position of God's wife of Amun to her daughter, Nefrure, and is crowned as Pharaoh. Even though there's an almost teenage Tutmos in place to take it, she manages to take control. This is huge. 
Her throne name, carved into stone before she even takes over, is The Soul of Rey is Truth. But it might as well have been Our Lady of the Full Court Press, because when she takes over, she's all about building Egypt's fortune as fast and as hard as she can. But just in case anyone out there is still doubting, she decides to rewrite her own history. How's this for a big religious political reveal? She's not actually the daughter of former pharaoh Tutmos I, but of the god Amun. What? At her mortuary temple, she crafts an ingenious story about her conception and her rise to power that leaves little room for questions. Here's how the story goes. First, it says, the god Amun comes to her mother Ames in the form of her husband, Tutmos I, and imposed his desire upon her. And then he reveals himself in all his godly glory, which, apparently, Ames is totally cool with, and then his love passed into her limbs. Afterward, Amun tells her, Ma'at Kare Hatshepsut shall be the name of thy daughter, which I have placed in your body. Go to make Hatshepsut from these limbs. Go to fashion her better than all the gods. I have given to her all life and satisfaction, all stability, all joy of heart from me, all offerings, and all bread like Ray forever. The story goes on to paint a rosy picture of her gilded childhood, surrounded by protection and the favor of the gods, saying, Her majesty grew beyond everything. To look upon her was more beautiful than anything. She was like a god. Her form was like a god. She did everything as a god. I mean, bold claim, but I'm into it. She also says that her father on paper, Tutmos I, introduced her to the elites around him as his chosen successor before he died. He who shall do her homage shall live, he tells the court. He who shall speak evil and blasphemy of her majesty shall die. Alrighty then. This whole thing is something later lady rulers and politicians will do to grab onto power without stirring up any overt man rage. She essentially points to herself and says, Who, me? Rule? Oh, no, no, I, I couldn't. Well, if Amun says I must. Here's a translation of the situation in Hatshepsut's words. For my majesty knows he is divine, and I have done it by his command. He is the one who guides me. I could not have imagined the work without his acting. He is the one who gives the directions. In other words, it's not like she wants to rule. She's just doing what she's been asked, and who can argue with that? She silences any haters, doing the written equivalent of walking out of a fire completely naked and holding dragons like she's Daenerys Targaryen. He who hears it will not say it is a lie. Rather say, how like her it is. She is devoted to her father. The god knew it in me. Amun, lord of the thrones of the two lands, he caused that I rule the black and red lands as reward. No one rebels against me in all lands. Damn, Hatshepsut. And guess what? No one does rebel against her, despite the fact that she has no clear right to be there. There are no coups, none that have been passed down to us anyway. Egypt accepts this lady king, even though they have a young man waiting in the wings. She has the priesthood in her pocket, and she's obviously good at her job. But that doesn't mean she won't have to fight to stay there. At first, she follows the example of female pharaohs before her in the realm of her PR department. 
Her etchings and statues look fairly feminine, with a few kingly touches mixed in. But as she gets a bit further into her reign, and as stepson Tutmos III gets stronger and sexist jerks probably start whispering behind her back, she decides to take things in a different direction. You know what? Screw it. Let's put on that Hillary Clinton pantsuit. Her statues start representing her as full-on gentleman pharaoh. All signs of femininity are erased. She straps on a Urius, a sacred serpent usually tacked onto the king's headdress, an emblem of supreme power, and the long, pointy beard that's synonymous with kingship. She rocks that royal crook and flail hard. This move has nothing to do with identity politics or her fondness for facial hair, and everything to do with the Egyptian language of power. This is her chance to solidify her position, to say to the world, This pharaoh ship is mine, and I deserve it. I'm more than man enough for this job. As pharaoh, she initiates an ambitious building campaign, creating jobs and making her cohort of priests very happy, constructing on a truly grand scale. She builds a great obelisk at Karnak, the tallest phallic symbol ever to be found there. She's also the first pharaoh to build mostly in sandstone, a strong material that lets her create things that are wider and taller than limestone allows for. She builds her goddad Amun something special at Karnak, a chapel whose reddish-pink quartzite is the reason we call it the Red Chapel today. It's there that we find the deets about her coronation and how Amun wanted her to rule, so she did. Several reliefs show her walking behind the god, with Sword of Stepson, Tutmos III, walking behind her. Don't worry your pretty head about it, Tutmos. Mama Hattie has it covered. And then there's her mortuary temple, one of the most beautiful, ambitious buildings in all of ancient Egypt. Since kings stopped building pyramids and started burying themselves in the Valley of the Kings, they've also been building mortuary temples. These are called temples of millions of years, places where people can go and celebrate the pharaoh, and where a gal can create and curate her own personal museum, shaping how she wants her legacy to be remembered. Hatshepsut wants hers on the west side of the Nile, against some tall cliffs sacred to the goddess Hathor, extremely visible and right across from the temple of Amun at a place called Deir el-Bari. This lady oasis is called Jezer Jezeru, or Holy of Holies, and it is extra. Even in our time, thousands of years on, it's still one of the most wow-worthy monuments in Egypt. Designed by our man Senenmut, no doubt with much input from Hatshepsut, they create a place that's incredibly visionary, with a grand symmetry that puts the Parthenon to shame. It has three levels and a giant ramp leading you up them, very wheelchair accessible and not so steep as to make you regret how many times you've skipped the gym this week. This path is probably lined by Sphinx statues, its first level filled with exotic shrubbery. This is Hatshepsut's Palace of Versailles, dedicated to her image, and she fills it with giant statues of herself, because, obviously... All of this construction creates jobs, but it's also really expensive. Hatshepsut's solution? Go and do a little warring. Who says a lady pharaoh doesn't like to stab things now and then? Shh. 
She takes her army south to strike some fear into the hearts of the Kushites, as they're rich in gold and stone quarries and are always a little mad about Egypt telling them what to do. She dominates, bringing back hordes of gold. Her wars are so successful that foreign kings to the north send her tributes, which are basically a fancy way of saying, we're friends, right? Please don't invade me? But these adventures aren't enough for Hatshepsut. In 1493 BCE, she organizes a rare and dangerous expedition to the mystical land of Punt. We don't know exactly where Punt is, modern-day Somalia, probably, but we do know that the place is famous for its riches. And it's far away by ancient standards. This trip will require a bunch of guys to drag ships in pieces 120 miles across the desert, then put them back together and sail across the Red Sea. This excursion is a big deal, like guys sailing across the Atlantic to test out whether the world is flat kind of a big deal. And it's a real make-or-break moment for Hatshepsut, because if the trip doesn't go well, it's going to look like the gods don't want her to be successful. And that might be all that needs to happen to see her kicked out of her pharaoh ship. But the trip is a success. Her band of explorers return with ships loaded down with ivory, ebony, giant balls of incense, precious frankincense and myrrh. They even bring back live incense trees and other exotic plants. This is the ancient world's first known successful attempt at transplanting foreign fauna. She would have planted many of them at Jezer Jezeru. I sure hope she took some time out to frolic amidst all that glorious smelling myrrh. She isn't just working for herself, of course. In her artwork, she often uses the hieroglyph for the marsh bird called a lapwing, which is often translated as the common people. This hieroglyph shows up more in her work than anyone else's of her dynasty, which makes it seem as if the people she was chiefly concerned about were our average farm gals from episode one. This woman raised in gilded halls cares very much about the fate of her people. But the good times can't last forever. Hatshepsut dies after serving some 20 years as pharaoh, and though she was technically never ruling all on her own, Tutmos III was always a part of the pharaohship. She's buried not in the Valley of the Queens, but of kings. But when archaeologists first find her in 1903 in what they call KV-20, there's no body inside her sarcophagus. It won't be found until some 100 years later, left out to the elements and buried in some minor tomb. She had no royal jewelry, no headdress, no gold sandals. King Tut, who came after her, was just a blip on the Egyptian kingly radar, and he got a lavish room full of glitzy offerings. But our magnificent Hattie was left forgotten and exposed on the floor. Rude! And in fact, her name was almost entirely erased from history. How did this happen? While she lived, it seems like Tutmos III was happy, or at least wasn't game to challenge her, for what he must have considered his rightful place. But he enjoys a long reign once she passes, and he isn't very far into it before he starts systematically removing her legacy, one building at a time. He smashes her statues, chips away at her etchings, and sometimes even clears her name off of carvings and replaces it with his or his father's. Given that the ancient Egyptians believed that erasing someone's name from the historical record messes with their afterlife, this is pretty cold. 
He even backdates his rulership to the year his father died, completely removing Hatshepsut from the chronology. Hey, Tutmos III, your tiny man complex is showing. We're not sure what happens to Hatshepsut's daughter, Nefrure. Does she marry the new pharaoh? Possibly, it would make sense, but there's no sure record of it. Do they have any children together? Again, maybe, but no real idea. Maybe he found a way to push her into obscurity, not wanting ever to be overshadowed by a powerful woman again. If only the rules had been different and Hatshepsut could have passed the torch to her own daughter. But in the ancient world, that was just asking too much. In her many years in power, Hatshepsut didn't just hang on to her position by her fingernails. She owned it in a time when women weren't meant to rule as she did. But don't take my word for it. Let's let her define her own legacy in this quote from her temple. Every god says to himself, One who will achieve eternal continuity has come, whom Amun has caused to appear as king of eternity on Horus' throne. So listen, all you elite and a multitude of commoners. I have done this by the plan of my mind. I do not sleep forgetting, but have made firm what is ruined. I am come as Horus, the sole Ureus spitting fire at my enemies. Yeah, she did. Many people question Hatshepsut's motives. Did she step over Tutmos III to rule herself because she was power-hungry? A woman thirsty for power and not afraid to show it. A thing that intimidated people then, just as now. No one ever questions a man's desire to rule the world. Or did she do it because she thought she was destined to? Because her country needed her and there was no one better qualified to be the ruler they needed. We know one thing for sure. She wanted to be remembered. And she worried about how the world would see and remember her after she was gone. And then she was wiped off the historical map for thousands of years, left an anonymous mummy on the floor of someone else's tomb. But we see you, Hatshepsut, not just as a woman who ruled and ruled well, but as one of the greatest pharaohs of ancient Egypt. I've never been more ready to bend the knee. You may know our next lady ruler from the famous bust of her very attractive head. The bust of Nefertiti was discovered in 1912 by a German guy named Ludwig Borchardt. Suddenly, we have in our hands the most alive Egyptian artwork, he said. You cannot describe it with words. You must see it. Even Hitler was obsessed with her. During World War II, the bust had to be hidden in bunkers and a salt mine to keep it out of his meaty hands. That guy was legit the worst, but he knew a good-looking head when he saw it. When I first saw Nefertiti's bust in Berlin, swan neck, killer cat eye makeup, and her incredibly regal headdress, I thought she looked like a fashion model straight out of our century. She looks like someone you'd slyly ogle in the grocery store, not like an ancient queen of Egypt. But she was so much more than a pretty face, and lived a life more jam-packed with drama than a season's worth of neighbors. We're still hanging out in the 18th dynasty, roughly 100 years after Hatshepsut. When you think of Egypt at its richest and glitziest, this is it. She is born into a country at the height of its powers, rich with gold and other goodies, full of grand buildings and huge construction projects. 
Amenhotep III has been ruling for many years, roughly 40, which in ancient Egypt is a massively long time. This is the guy who married a foreign princess and still had enough energy to check out all of her 317 ladies-in-waiting, sending a note to his vassal asking him to collect a few. But still, he has a main squeeze named T, who is a major influencer. She'll maintain her own correspondence with foreign dignitaries, and eventually her son will make her into a goddess. Speaking of, this couple has at least two royal sons together, but given the size of his harem, Amenhotep III has upwards of 100 kids floating around the palace. Imagine trying to remember 100 kids' names. Hey you, product of my loins. Wait, don't tell me. John? Anton? Number 12? Uh, I give up. How about I just call you son? This pharaoh styles himself as a god, setting himself even more apart from everyone else in Egypt than many of the guys who came before him. Near the end of his reign, he also elevates a minor sun god called Aten. He makes this abstract sun disk his personal deity, dedicating the hugest temple ever to him. He also gives himself a new, nifty title, Egypt's Dazzling Sun. Put a pin in Aten, we'll come back to him later. Meanwhile, Nefertiti is off somewhere living a luxe life of wealth and excess, but not in the royal household. Maybe her dad was a court advisor named Ai. Or maybe, some say, she isn't Egyptian at all, but actually a princess all the way from Syria. We don't know who her parents were, but we do know that they must have been important, as she's given both a wet nurse and a tutor. So, regardless of her exact lineage, it's extremely likely that she grows up living like a Kardashian. And if she does grow up in Egypt, she's watching the royals line their swimming pools with gold bars, throwing money up into the air like they just don't care, because they don't. They are rich as Croesus. Side note, my grandma always used to say that, rich as creases, and I thought she meant creases, like the kind you get in your pants. But Croesus is a real guy, a king of Lydia in Asia Minor, who will use his mega piles of gold to build impressive temples. And even he would balk at this level of wealth. Amenhotep builds a pleasure palace at Thebes with a mile-long lake, along with a pleasure barge to cruise around on it. As the royal families carry through the streets during Jubilee celebrations, they're handing out hand-sized stone scarabs like party favors. This is a time of gold and glitter. As a sweet young thing, Nefertiti must enjoy some real ragers. Things are going well until Amenhotep III gets fat and old and his chosen successor, Tutmos, dies suddenly. He quickly names his second son, Amenhotep IV, his co-ruler, and he steps in around 1353 BCE after his father's death. His reign is pretty typical at first. He builds buildings, he paddles around on his dad's pleasure lake. But then, some four years into his reign, he decides it's time to wife up. We don't know how and why he chooses Nefertiti. Perhaps she's a foreign bride brought over to cement alliances. Or maybe he's known her all his life. Maybe he sees her across the room one day, draped elegantly next to a palm frond and is like, Damn, girl, you fine. Her name, which she might receive upon her marriage, does mean the beautiful one has come, so it's possible. 
As young as 10 and as not very much older as 16, Nefertiti finds herself endowed with titles like Lady of All Women, Great of Praises, and Mistress of Upper and Lower Egypt, the chief wife of the land's richest, most powerful man. And that man has got some pretty shocking ideas about where he wants his country to go. Surrounded by wealth, a country running smoothly, and no one willing to tell him no because he's basically a god, damn it, he starts making some bold choices. Some might even call them heretical. He throws a massive said festival, or jubilee, way too soon, given that you're not supposed to throw one for yourself until you've ruled for 30 years and he's been around for approximately two minutes. This is just the first of many red flags, because he's undergone some kind of religious conversion that's going to dominate the rest of his reign. He orders builders to quickly construct new temples at Karnak for the festival. The deadline's so tight that they're forced to invent a new building technique using much smaller stone blocks than they're used to. Does that sound like a recipe for a large-scale disaster? But then comes the big, juicy reveal. This festival isn't actually for Amenhotep IV at all, but for Aten, that minor sun god we mentioned earlier. Because Aten is now Amenhotep's new BFF. Imagine the priests' horror on the day of the festival, their dread as they take in their pharaoh's newfangled symbols and outfit, and the artwork etched all over the walls, which he said the god communicated directly to his brain. And this art is seriously avant-garde. The royal family's features are elongated, stretched in an almost surrealist style, with extended bellies, exaggerated angles, and beams of light shooting over and through them. In a land of up-and-down nubile hotties, the look is unique, and it isn't doing Nefertiti any favors in the looks department. She's probably checking them out on the festival day, being all like, Ew, did you have to post that one? But in this artwork, her husband gives Nefertiti pride of place like no queen before her. She's often represented at the same size as her husband. Since size equals importance, it's a big deal for her to be on par with her pharaoh. It also shows a scandalous amount of PDA. Nefertiti sitting on her husband's lap, cuddling, even kissing. Whew! Is it getting hot in this temple? Because these things are just not done. While it's clear that Nefertiti isn't his only lady lover, she's certainly important to him. He even writes his wife some racy love poetry. And the heiress, great in the palace, fair of face, adorned with the double plumes, mistress of happiness, endowed with favors, at hearing whose voice the king rejoices, the chief wife of the king, his beloved, the lady of the two lands, Neferne Ferwaten Nefertiti, may she live forever and always. Notice that in this poem, he's the one worshipping her, as is proper. And as nice as all this Nefertiti worship is, this whole thing rocks Egypt's boat really hard. Because her husband isn't just obsessed with this minor sun god, Aten. He wants to completely change his country's mode of worship. He changes his name to Akhenaten, meaning it is beneficial to the Aten, and more or less gets up and says the following. Oh, hey, everyone. So big announcement. There is only one god now. His name's Aten. He is the actual son. Uh, all those other gods, yeah, they're over. There's only Aten. Cool. 
Cool. It's hard to overstate how big a deal this is in ancient Egypt, where the sun quite literally rises and sets only if the pharaoh and his priests worship the gods correctly. Note that plural, gods. This is the structure the whole country hangs its hat on, spiritually, economically, politically, which makes this, perhaps the world's first stab at monotheism, seem completely insane. Amidst all this crazy, people have to be looking at Nefertiti with some serious, is this for real, eyes. If you're a Game of Thrones fan, think of the witch Melisandre telling everyone who will listen that there's only the god of fire and nothing else. Some people see it as visionary, but many see it as their leader going completely bonkers and deciding to join some crazy cult. Akhenaten's changing his symbols, his temples, he's even messing with the Egyptian afterlife, and he's making it illegal to worship anyone but a ten. Oh yeah, we're talking about a ten. Whoa, whoa, and boy, he's the sun. Uh, do 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 do. Yikes. Akhenaten makes sure to emphasize his solar fusion with his main man Aten in any way he can. How does one worship a god who is literally the sun? Hello, sweaty ceremonies in open roofless courtyards. Priests have to stand out under the scorching desert sun and let the god's light beat down on them, getting very sunburned and probably whispering mad smack about the whole business. The night may be dark and full of terrors, but the day is really hot and I'm starting to peel. This isn't just theoretically troubling, it puts many, many people out of a job. Think of all those priests of Amun, the artisans who sell religious amulets, everyone involved in the religious structure. It's a lot of people, and a lot of powerful people. They must be sputtering with rage. But given that Egyptians don't overthrow their kings very often, and there is no ancient complaints box, who knows how they really feel? We don't know how Nefertiti feels about it either. Is she totally down with this born-again theology? Does she even help inspire it? Or is she simply going along for the ride, trying to make sure her husband doesn't steer their country's boat into any whirlpools? Regardless, this new monotheistic system puts her in a unique position, given a kind of power that few queens have known before. She's even given her own temple, which is filled with pictures not of her husband, but of her and her daughters. A place of ladies-only worship. Speaking of daughters, in their marriage's first decade, Nefertiti manages to have six of them. Official artists are often making a big deal of her prolific fertility. And she's like, I'm fertile as hell, y'all. Things only get weirder from here. After having a prophetic dream, Akhenaten decides to move the capital out of Thebes to a remote desert site called Amarna. He builds his dream city there with the quickness, far away from all those old pesky gods and their power-hungry priests. This is nothing short of a revolution. This move is a two-sided, culty coin situation. On one side, you have a religion defined by light and love, and a new city full of new ideas. On the other, you have elitism and terrible labor practices, where the people building the city are malnourished and treated poorly. Akhenaten makes sure there are plenty of airy courtyards and temples without roofs so that we can all get sunburnt by the god together. 
He dubs his city Akatatan, or Horizon of the Aten, and tells the courtiers they'd better settle in. Of course, he has to give them lots of land and high positions to get them out there, but whatever. After all, what are those piles of gold for? In this new world, we see a ton of artwork dedicated to the royal family. It's like Akhenaten wanted the world, present and future, to know how crucial his queen and children are to his power and his beliefs. They show Nefertiti not just as her husband's arm candy, but as a leader in her own right, driving her own chariot and smiting her own enemies. Get it, Nefertiti? You throw that spear! Akhenaten and Nefertiti make sure to ride through the streets in their golden chariot as often as possible, no longer servants of the gods, but gods themselves, and maybe even co-rulers. But things aren't all golden chariots in Nefertiti's life. Her husband has a harem that she has to manage, and one woman, Kia, also called Monkey, is given an unprecedented title by her husband, that of greatly beloved wife. And Nefertiti's like, Um, excuse me, what now? Monkey's quick to pass out of the records, and we don't know what happens to her. Who knows, maybe Nefertiti fed her to the crocs. And then, two of their much-beloved daughters actually marry dear old dad. So yes, she's now sharing a marriage bed with her husband and their two young daughters. Awkward. But what's a girl to do as she starts to get older and her husband gets cozy with their offspring? Pull a Madonna and reinvent herself. Around year 12 of Akhenaten's crazy reign, Nefertiti disappears from the records. Maybe she dies of some ancient world plague. Or maybe, when a new co-ruler suddenly appears, it's actually our girl Nefertiti. This co-ruler's name is incredibly hard to pronounce. Ankeperure Neferne Fernuaten? Ooh, oh my. If it is Nefertiti, and let's be honest, that second half of her new name sounds a whole lot like her last one, then she has done what no queen has done before her, rules equally beside her pharaoh husband and with the same kind of power. It's hard to know how and why this whole thing transpires. Maybe Akhenaten feels he needs her to keep the nobles on his side, and she's the better politician of the two. Maybe she's the only one he can trust. Or maybe she's just really good at ruling, and Aten only knows that her husband needs some help. Then tragedy strikes. Two of their daughters die. In year 14 of his reign, Akhenaten's great mother T dies also. And that's when Akhenaten really starts losing his marbles. He not only doubles down on his worship of Aten, but orders workers to go around shipping the images of other gods like the beloved Amun off temples, tearing away the plural word gods wherever they see it written. If you're a polytheistic believer, as most of the populace surely still is, imagine walking around with amulets tucked under your collar, terrified someone will rat on you. Things are getting Handmaid's Tale level dark. But then they get darker, quite literally, when a total eclipse appears in the Nile Valley in 1338 BCE. It takes the sun out of view for more than five whole minutes. Just imagine Nefertiti looking out the window, wondering if her world is ending, if maybe this whole crazy gamble on a sun god wasn't the visionary move she may have thought. Imagine how you'd worry that the people would take it as a sign and revolt against you. 
When Akhenaten finally dies around age 50, not of poison, apparently, which is kind of shocking, Nefertiti and her remaining kids are left to pick up the pieces of the broken empire he's left behind. But first, a new pharaoh is chosen, one Ankeperure Smenkare. Does that first name sound familiar? It should. It's the same one we think Nefertiti was just using as part of her co-regency name. So, of course, historians wonder, is this new pharaoh actually Nefertiti, reinventing herself once again? Does she transform herself so completely after her husband's death that she's able to hold on to her power? Some argue that because this pharaoh has wives on records, he must be a man. But what if those wives, Nefertiti's remaining daughters, are actually just her working partners? While she rules as pharaoh, her daughter Meritaten rules as queen beside her, keeping proper balance in place. It's kind of wild to think about, this queen rising out of her husband's crazy ashes with her lady posse and being like, Move over, boys. Let me show you how it's done. Egypt is in real turmoil, and someone needs to put it right. Why not her? Smenkare sets to work, promptly moving the capital back to a major city, rehiring priests, and basically saying, Okay, everybody. Polytheism is back on. You can thank me later. She's also trying to make sure her remaining children don't grow up to be complete nutjobs. That includes one Tutankhamun. Maybe you've heard of him? We don't know for sure that he's Nefertiti's son. He could be her grandson, or the son of another one of his wives. But if this is Nefertiti ruling the country, he must look up to her as he grows, trying to grapple with what it means to be a true ruler. This potential Nefertiti is only pharaoh for a few short years, and then she disappears from the records again in a puff of golden, glittery smoke. There's so much we just don't know about how her dramatic story goes down. Even her legacy is steeped in drama. When her bust is discovered in 1912, everyone is obsessed with this queen of the desert. But we don't actually know where she's buried. In the Valley of the Kings, perhaps. But where? Some think that a mummy called the Younger Lady, discovered in 1898, might be her. Though we hope not, given that she's missing an arm and someone seems to have done mean things to her body, messing with her afterlife. Not even her incredible bust is sacred. Some recent CT scans of Nefertiti's head show another, less flattering layer of stucco underneath, with a bump in her nose and wrinkles around her eyes. She may have been one of the earliest celebs to undergo serious photoshopping. I wonder what Nefertiti would think of all this hot gossip. What are you so obsessed with my face for? Wrinkles or not, we both know I'm fine. Most experts think we still haven't found her body. But in 2015, a British Egyptologist will make an exciting claim that maybe when King Tut died suddenly and was buried in his now-famous tomb, it was really just the front portion of a larger tomb meant for Nefertiti. It was a tantalizing idea, but in 2018, ground-penetrating radar suggested that there was nothing lurking behind King Tut's tomb. Which is sad, because until we find Nefertiti, we'll only ever be able to guess at how much she truly accomplished. Here's another tantalizing idea put forth by Kara Cooney in her book When Women Ruled the World, that King Tut's famous sarcophagus, the one you think of when you think of ancient Egypt, was actually meant for Nefertiti. 
Perhaps it's her face we've been staring at all this time, calling out to us through the ages, trying to tell us the story of her awesomeness. Let's hop over one or two generations to our next lady. But before we get to her, let's talk about what's going on in Egypt, since things have changed a little since Nefertiti partied down. The people in charge have gotten wary of both heretical kings without any checks on their power and royal women with any power at all. Thanks to Crazy Bag Akhenaten, the powerful elite families will never again blindly trust their leader. We see a conservative backswing toward powerful male warrior kings, and we also see far fewer incest, brother-mother-wife situations. This is great for girls trapped in the incestuous harem. Go forth, ladies! Breathe that fresh air! Have an affair with a fairy man! But it also means they don't have the same power or potency as they once did. For better or worse, keeping it all in the family is what's let all of our ladies so far move up the political chain. But now we see a series of powerful pharaohs with truly giant harems and obscene numbers of children, which creates its own problems, as we'll see. The Ramesside period is dominated by guys called Ramses, starting with number one and going all the way to eleven. Side note, Keep in mind that when I call pharaohs things like Tutmos I and Amenhotep III, they didn't give themselves these numbers. Historians label them this way because, well, the whole thing is really confusing. So, these guys kick ass, take names, and bring foreign slaves back to Egypt as spoils of war. This is where our image of the enslaved in Egypt comes from. These Ramses guys have many, many children. Ramses II, also known as Ramses the Great, has some 162 of them, making him the 10th most prolific dad on historical record. Though he's got nothing on Genghis Khan. That guy slayed. Ramses still has a main wife, Nefertari, whose name means the loveliest one of all. This successful queen consort marries Ramses too before he ascends to the position of pharaoh, suggesting theirs is at least in part a love match. Despite his busy sex schedule, Ramses the Great makes sure to celebrate his main squeeze by building giant statues of her all over Egypt including a temple all her own down south near Nubia at Abu Simbel, where he installs statues of her at a truly grand scale, around 30 feet tall, even taller than her husband. Her beautiful tomb in the Valley of the Queens showcases her many talents. She stands before the god of knowledge, Thoth, proclaiming she's a scribe, an academic accolade not often given to women. She also corresponds with a rival Hittite queen, becoming a kind of foreign ambassador. In sum, she wields some serious behind-the-scenes power, no question. But she doesn't have the same paths to power as the royal women before her. While before, pharaohs tended to leave most of their children's names off of official records until one was chosen as the next pharaoh, this guy publishes their names all over the place. Which is nice, right? Just look at that Ramses and his billions of children holding hands and spinning in circles. Except that naming them gives his kids a kind of power that threatens the establishment. This is why Merneith and her dynasty had to kill a bunch of people each time a new pharaoh was crowned. 
Suddenly you have a situation where all 50 or so sons are encouraged to shout their connection to the pharaoh from the rooftops, and thus all consider themselves entitled to be his next in line. 50 eager boys with swords competing for the top spot. This'll end well, surely. And then Ramses the Great makes things worse by deciding to live precisely forever. He makes it to the ripe old age of almost 100. It must have been all that regular harem exercise. And though the Egyptians are not ones to write down anything juicy about conflict in the royal household, there are signs of feuding between Ramses' sons. In 1200 BCE, he names some 12 of these guys his successors. And then, because this is the ancient world, they all end up dying before they can inherit. That's how the 13th runner-up son, Merneptah, ends up becoming pharaoh of the two lands. And he's got serious problems to deal with. One of them is that he's a little old to be taking on the kingship, which depends upon him having legitimate heirs. But also, a bunch of what are called the Sea Peoples are coming to Egypt in massive numbers. Evacuees from the north looking for a better life. But they're not just showing up and asking for asylum, they're invading Egypt. This is the situation our main lady, Tawosret, is born into. From now on, foreign invaders will never leave Egypt alone again. Just like his father before him, Merneptah doesn't die until he's 60 or 70, having managed to outlive most of his sons. But one remains. His name is Seti Merneptah, otherwise known, conveniently for my pronunciation struggles, as Seti II. He, like his dad, is fairly long in the tooth by the time he comes to power, a little old to be playing that good old bull of Egypt. So though he already has a wife, probably around the same age as he is, he decides he'll need to take a second, much younger one to make some kingly babies. That's where our gal Tawosret comes in. From the beginning, this must be a weird situation. She's one of two great royal wives, and she's the younger one. This has to lead to some awkward teas and backdoor dealings with the pharaoh's other wife. Maybe they keep things separate, heading up different harems, because of course the pharaoh has several. A gaggle of ladies in every port, literally. Or maybe they pretend to support each other while they scheme behind each other's backs. Tawosret must be working hard to get a bun in the oven, assuring her place in the scheme of things before her elderly husband croaks. But it doesn't seem like they ever manage it. There's external warring, too. While Tawosret's hubby is ruling from Pi Ramses way up in the Nile River Delta, in the south of Thebes there's this other guy who has decided he doesn't like the way the pharaoh is ruling. And since he's related to Ramsay the Great, I mean, who isn't, he claims himself as king of the south. That's what happens when you have a million children, Ramses. This upstart pharaoh, named Amun Messis, has military might and control over Nubia's gold mines behind him. The country's plunged into one of its first civil wars. In only a few years, this southern king is defeated, but it leaves the country in a bit of a mess. So Seti too does what any pharaoh would do, starts defacing anything his rival ever built and scrubbing his name from the records. He also appoints someone to help him get things back in order in the south, a non-royal guy named Bey. <laughs> As 
as the great overseer of the seal of the entire land. This guy has control of the entire treasury, and he's sent down to Thebes to consolidate the king's power. While he's at it, he removes a carving of Seti II at Karnak and puts one up of himself instead. The rumor mill is aghast. Okay, so number one, he isn't even the pharaoh. Number two, he isn't even royal. I heard he's not even Egyptian. He sure isn't my bae. Yet he's carving his name into the stone like he owns the place, a definite sign of troubles to come. But enough about men and their swordplay. Seti II dies younger than his forebears, and his death plunges the land into a succession crisis. The next pharaoh, named Sipta, is very young and has some kind of mysterious disability. We don't know where he came from, but Tawosret certainly doesn't produce him. She has no clear claim to the throne anymore. Regardless, she pulls a classic Hatshepsut, stepping in to rule as his regent. She also takes up that old standby position, God's Wife of Amun, perhaps to try and prove that she does indeed have the power to be regent. But unlike Hatshepsut, she isn't the daughter of a king. She hasn't spent her entire life making important connections. So how does she even end up here? Some think that the nefarious Bey engineers it. But if he does, it's not out of any love for her. Down in Thebes, he is creepily leaning over the new pharaoh's shoulder, all Rasputin-like, using the pharaoh as a puppet. And whatever he's doing with that power, it isn't good. According to the great Harris papyrus found in Ramses IV's tomb, another time came consisting of empty years when Irsu, the one who made himself, Assyrian, was among them as a chief, having put the whole land into subjugation before him. Each joined with his companion in plundering their goods, and they treated the gods as they did men, and no offerings were made in the temples. He goes ahead and carves his image all over Egypt, making sure to include the pharaoh and Tawosret, but only to show that he controls them both. Such wild grasping would have been all anyone around the Egyptian dinner table could talk about. It's hard to know how Tawosret feels about any of this, but it's easy to imagine. How would you feel if you had a boss one-eighth as qualified as you were, who took credit for everything you did and made belittling comments to you during meetings? You'd add him to your burn list and bide your time, waiting for the right moment to strike. Year five of Sipta's reign seems to have been her moment, because Bay the Creep is killed. Bay bye The records say the young pharaoh Sipta kills him, but that guy's only 15 and has a club foot, so my money's on to Wozret. Just saying. Now she's free to truly act as regent, training Sipta up and getting him ready for kingship. But then he dies quite young, probably because the ancient world is one in which people die from toothaches. But here's an alternate theory. Maybe, much like Cersei Lannister, Tawosret gets sick of trying to manipulate incompetent rulers and says, You know what? That's it. Bye, Sipta. This is my time to shine. If she does kill him, can you blame her? She's grown up with warrior pharaohs who, when they saw something they wanted, went in and took it. Why can't she do the same? Whether or not she offed the new guy, she's quick to capitalize on his death. She steps in as sole ruler, taking on new names along with it. Strong bull, beloved of Mott, beautiful as king like Amun. 
And like a bull, she will gouge out your intestines if you try to test her. She commissions new statues and rewrites her history, wiping out Sipta completely, making sure everyone knows this is her rightful place. Because somehow, even with their giant harems, this woman is the only Dynasty 19 member still standing. This woman takes the throne with more violent force than any who came before her. But trying to rule without any man beside her, even if he's just a puppet, means she's facing a steeply uphill battle to hang on to the pharaoh ship. Tawosrat isn't afraid to show her ambition, and that sends ripples through the water. In the end, it's what seals her fate. She only rules for two to four years before someone, or many someones, decide they can no longer suffer a single lady to rule. A guy named Setnacht sweeps in and gets rid of her. This cutthroat lady king finds herself on the end of someone else's pointy knife. But there is an upside to her story. Unlike Hatshepsut, the names written into Wozret's tomb were never chipped away. Just a few decades later, she stops being referred to as a rebel or the enemy. She's a woman who dared to step out from behind the harem curtain and seize power for herself, for however short a time it lasted. And it's the end of an era. We won't see another female pharaoh for over a thousand years. That lady's name is Cleopatra. Wait, you say? Why are you playing the theme music? Aren't you going to talk about Cleopatra and her many steamy adventures? You know it. But not until a bit later in the season. Because Cleo's actually Greek by descent, and because she's so involved in the world of the Romans, we have to talk about both of those civilizations to truly appreciate how amazing she was. What do these lady pharaohs have to teach us? That ancient Egypt isn't a lady utopia. That incest is gross, but can sometimes lend advantage. That being PR savvy can make or break your career. They show us the power of political savvy, a quick mind, and the desire to make a difference. Women, then and now, have always had to fight to be taken seriously, to lead without being called shrill or too demanding or too harsh. But as difficult as it is to be a woman in power, they show us that it's a war still worth waging. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you're a fan, consider becoming a patron. You'll help keep the show going and get access to exclusive bonus content, sneak peeks, and more. Just go to my website and click on Become a Patron. While you're there, check out the transcript for this episode, which includes the lady-centric timeline and special map I mentioned, plus a list of my research sources, music credits, and a ton of amazing images. Just go to www.theexplorespodcast.com. Speaking of images, come find me on Instagram at The Explores Podcast, or come play with me on Facebook or Twitter at The Explores Pod. With any questions or suggestions, just shoot me an email. 
I love hearing from you. Most of this episode's music was graciously provided by Derek and Brandon Fischer and Keith Zizza. You'll find links to their work in the show notes. Thanks, as always, to Mr. Explores, a.k.a. Paul Gablonski, for my theme music, logo, and the incredible ancient Egyptian map and timeline you'll find on my website. A big thanks and shout-out to the mighty female writers whose books provided a wealth of information on these women and their worlds. Cara Cooney, Stacey Schiff, Joyce Tildesley, Barbara Watterson, and Carolyn Graves-Brown. You can find links to their awesome work in the show notes. Thanks also to the following voiceover legends. My brother, John Armstrong, who played the colorful Akhenaten. I'm so glad we don't live in a time and a place where anyone made us marry each other. Caitlin Seifert as our spicy Nefertiti. Ray Reynolds from the Splaining podcast as Cutthroat to Wozred. And Nancy Wasner as our regal as hell Hatch Hatshepsut. We're talking about Aton. Whoa, whoa. And yeah, he looks good. He's the son. Do 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 do